is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel, and every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today is Mario Rigby, an eco-explorer from Turks and Caicos, who became famous in adventure travel circles for walking the entire length of Africa, from Cape Town to Cairo. A goal-oriented mindset and the ability to push his physical limits have always motivated Mario, who competed for the Turks and Caicos national track and field team in his youth. He was 30 years old and working for himself as a fitness coach in Toronto, Canada, before the adventure itch sent him on a life-changing two-year journey through Africa, which he undertook solo and entirely on foot. In this episode, Mario shares experiences from his epic journey, from life-affirming encounters with locals and wildlife to near-death experiences, and the mental and physical fortitude it took to complete his mission. Plus, navigating sudden fame as news of his trip spread across the continent, storytelling as a tool for encouraging courageousness, and the power of walkabouts as a rite of passage. This episode is sponsored by Hilton Head Island, America's favorite island. Well, it's so nice to meet you. I'm really excited that you agreed to do this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure to meet you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I usually like to jump into things by asking, where did your love of travel originate? Yeah, it's going to sound a little bit weird, but, you know, so it started before I think I was even born. My mom, she was a huge contributor to traveling. She was actually one of the first women in Turks and Caicos Islands to actually leave the islands at such a young age with this foreign guy who was German. And it was such a taboo thing to even, you know, cross cultures or, you know, have um, interracial relationships. And she decided to take a leap to live in Germany with her two children, my myself and my brother. I was just a couple of years at the time and my brother was just born. She just wanted to get away and, and experience the world. And, you know, that was, uh, it was like a kind of a Little Mermaid kind of fantasy type situation. <laughs> but but um, it became real. And I think she's always had this thirst for, for travel. We always used to go on, on camping trips and, and whatnot in Germany, actually. And so even till this day now, she travels quite often. So I, got, I think I get a lot of that, um, that adventure travel spirit from her but also from my stepdad who's also like very adventurous person i didn't know that you spent some of your childhood in germany how long were you there for yeah so i lived here about for about 10 years and uh, german is actually my first language Hmm. so i yeah so i still speak it fluently and um rustic but fluently (laughs) rustic That's a good way of describing it. And so you're from Turks and Caicos originally, or that's where your parents are from, and you were born there. And you, I know you were a professional track and field athlete for the country. That must have taken you on some adventures when you were doing that. So it actually did. And it's funny that you said that because one of my first real big adventures started with me going on a track and field meet. It was called NACAC Championships, which is the North American, Central American Championships. And it was uh, based in El Salvador, San Salvador, in the capital. And um, I remember arriving there and uh, my coach actually didn't make it through customs in El Salvador. 
although I met him in Miami and we flew together and he didn't have the proper visa work. So, you know, they had to, they held him in a, like a holding station, <laughs> kept him overnight. And I remember just none of the other athletes being around. I was the only athlete. So it was really kind of uh, mind boggling at that time because I've never really traveled internationally by myself. And it was kind of like a first experience. You can imagine being in a country where, you know, they had just essentially ended a civil war like 10 years prior. So there's still a lot of, you know, people walking around like uh, security with AK-47s everywhere. So we had to think very quickly. And what I did was, you know, I had to become the delegator manager, athlete and coach for my own country. <laughs> and I had to do all of that in Spanish. I had to delegate in Spanish. So I was like literally learning um, how to speak Spanish on the fly. <laughs> That was such a really cool experience because it allowed me to venture outside of what I thought was comfortable. And, you know, there's this cab driver that essentially took me around. We ended up becoming really good friends. And he showed me to the places where um, tourists would never go to. But that was like my favorite. Those are my favorite places to go to. Like, you know, like showing me his neighborhoods where, you know, they're playing street basketball. You know, the kids were excited to see me playing with them. And that's what I did. And um, that happened quite a while ago, back in 2007. And ever since that time, I've always had that thirst for adventure. Yeah, I was going to say, there seems to be some foreshadowing in that trip for the, the trip that changed you. Because, you know, there's the ingredients of adventure, of you feeling not intimidated by maybe situations where you're out of your element or out of your depth and just like really interested in other cultures and other places. So I think that's very cool. But I want to touch on kind of your competitive side again, because obviously... <laughs> <laughs> you stopped competing professionally, but I yeah. feel like perhaps you did continue to express that competitive spirit. How did you do that? So track and field is, you know, primarily an individual sport. And so I would say that 90% of that is mental. And someone who's not fit, it would be like 100% fitness. <laughs> but if like assume that you're already at, at the fittest point that you could possibly be in your life use that as the start line and then the rest of the 90 percent is mental so that's how tough track and field is and also in the as an individual sport you don't really have people rowing for you all the time or you know um, encouraging you you don't have that as much as like say on a team sport so i've always had this this kind of drive to 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 do better for myself in in track and field, particularly the 200, 400 meter sprint. And 400 meter sprint is, as we know, is the hardest you know event in track and field. So anyone that does it is probably a little bit crazy, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, including myself. And I used to hate training. Oh my goodness, the training was so bad. However, knowing that when you get to the start line, the conditioning that you've gone through will shape how you perform in that event in the 400 meters if you're going to run 45 seconds or 49 seconds in that particular event so i've learned throughout my life by training to push myself to the limits and to understand what my limits are and once you've known once you know every single day that okay cool i can hit my 99th you know threshold 99 percent uh, threshold that is a very, that's, that's a skill almost like, you know, knowing how to tap your maximum. And so I've basically transferred all of that into what I do today with my expeditions, with uh, kayaking, cycling, um, swimming, you name it, running. I'll, yeah, I'll run 
long distances too. As a sprinter, that's like a huge no-no, but <laughs> I'll dive into whatever it takes because, um, you know, and, and that's where my mental fortitude comes from. It comes from uh, training and having really great, great coaches that kind of push me through it and knowing in my mind what is my ultimate limit. And I think that can get you um, out of a lot of dangerous situations as well. And I know you became a coach or a fitness instructor, personal instructor, after you finished competing professionally. So around this time, I think you were approaching 30 years old. How did you feel about your life and your place in the world? Well, yeah, I would say that it was like a downward spiral of just like not knowing, you know, where I fit in in life. Uh, not having a purpose, you know, before uh, track and field, my purpose was to compete at the highest possible level in the Olympics. And um, that dream never got realized. And so, you know, I started, you know, figuring out what are the other things that I like to do. So, you know, I got into training, but I think training was more of a substitute, like the closest thing that I would accept <laughs> um, because I tried every other job where, you know, I, I set in an office. I don't think I've ever actually set in an office, but um, I have sat on chairs in a job before. There was this one job, it was a marketing um job for a credit card company and um i i i could i didn't survive for more than three days it was just not possible <laughs> it wasn't possible yeah so you know I, I so i said okay cool i need to train i need to be a trainer because where i wanted to take training was to an entrepreneurial level and that's really what i'm doing right now as well is, is entrepreneurship um but i'm also an explorer um i'm also an artist uh, and i do photography film so i do a lot of different things and that's kind of what i really wanted to do but during that time before i hit the 30s you know i was kind of looking and so i was like you know all these different places and and a lot of people would think, you know, you're lost, you're confused, you need to have a steady focus. And, you know, people kept telling me that. And it was probably true. But I knew that in my heart that what I really wanted didn't really present itself, you know, like a, like a clean menu that the world has to offer. It was something that I had to make up. And so one day I just decided this is probably the best, one of the best possible gifts I can give myself, which is to go on an expedition on an adventure that would thoroughly change my life. This idea of becoming an explorer and walking the entire length of Africa, it's a huge feat. <laughs> How did you come up with the idea for this? So I think it was just like a bunch of different ideas, but going back to my um, earlier days, my childhood days, my brother and I used to watch The Black Panther and there was this episode on, it was on BET, Black Entertainment Television, which is in America. They played this, but only a very few people ever watched it. I remember no one really knew who Black Panther was, but I was, I was so engaged as a kid to follow every single episode because it was so incredibly interesting. It was like these tribal people, it was in Africa and, you know, at the time, as a kid, I didn't think like, oh, there's another black, there's a, well, not another, but there's one black superhero. I just, I just thought to myself like, whoa, it's cool that they're in the jungle or that they're in this, you know, the safaris. I never thought about what race um, the Black Panther was. 
or anything like that. I just thought it was really awesome that, you know, you have a superhero who actually works really hard to make uh, moral and ethical guidelines in his leadership. And in the Black Panther, the, the TV show, T'Challa, before he became the king of Wakanda, he decided to go on a walkabout, um, which is very common uh, in tribal African um, places where young men basically go on these quests to become men, right? So it's a rites of passage. And what they do is they go on these, you know, it can be anywhere from a couple of weeks to five months, six months, where only when they have learned how to hunt and survive on their own or with a group of people, can they come back to the village and become leaders? And so in this uh, particular episode, they actually showed a part of that. They showed T'Challa doing this particular process before becoming a leader. And I feel like that in our modern day society, we don't have that. Mm-hmm. You know, we, you can be um, a really intelligent person who deciphers uh, numbers or words very quickly in their heads, but without any moral or ethical guidelines. It's essentially a weapon that could or could not be triggered. And so, you know, we wonder why we go in the direction where we are right now in humanity. And so as a kid, I always thought that that was such an important role. And in order for me to lead and to do the great things that I really wanted to do in my head, in my dreams, I felt like I wanted to recreate this journey that T'Challa had done. And so I thought to myself, why not? And I looked at if it's possible. And I wasn't actually sure if it was possible, but I did it anyways. Are you the first person to have done a journey like this? I don't think I'm the first person to have done the journey. Um, there was someone back in the 17th century, who was some guy who may have done it. And then there was couples who've done it as partners. The people, and, you know, the people who've done it have come and gone kind of thing. There was this French couple. I remember they did it uh, together for five years, I believe. And halfway through, they had to leave the continent and come back because um, uh, she was pregnant. And so, you know, they couldn't have done it in one straight shot. But I would say that, yeah, as, as um, a solo person who's documented it and that it's solo, yeah, for sure. I mean, unless someone can find any other person, then I'd love to see them. You're the only person that I've heard of. So, yeah, it's very <laughs> impressive. But I'm intrigued by this idea of the walkabout, because like you said, it's kind of rooted in lots of different cultures as this big rite of passage, like a rite of passage to move into proper adulthood, I guess. Why do you think that voyages of this type are such an effective tool for self-discovery and self-understanding? You don't have to necessarily do a walk, per, per se, but what a rite of passage, what, like, you know, the one that I've done, walking the length of Africa, I mean, it was an ultimate challenge. Essentially, what you're doing is you're, you're challenging yourself to see where your limits are uh, mentally, psychologically, you know, strategically, physically, and uh, your endurance. You know, how, you know, can you endure every single day waking up in unknown situations where you could be arrested, shot at? attacked by an animal, <laughs> drown, fall down a cliff. Uh, you know, it's like you literally have a thousand ways to die every single day. And you have to like think about that. <laughs> and um, you wake up and you're like, all right, let's go for a walk. But what they really do is, is, is it really challenges you. And you have to be a puzzle, like a 
puzzle solver, essentially. Because every day you're waking up and you have to solve a new problem. And those problems vary all the way from, you know, how are you going to scale uh, th- these mountains? Uh, how are you going to cross the river? How are you going to engage with a community that you don't even speak the language? You know, how do you get people to help you? Those are very um, important. So it really uh, broadens your ability to to survive and to, to thrive on planet Earth. And I think if you go through a rite of passage like this. Like, I'm not saying, again, walking <laughs> the length of Africa. Uh, I also wouldn't recommend that for most people. But if you do anything challenging, like if you go on a Camino Trail, for instance, you know, it's really um, it's really nice to see, you know, how far you can go and also how many, how much, how people are out there and they're, you know, they're willing to help you. Mm. Well, speaking of problem solving, let's talk logistics. (laughs) How did you go about planning this trip? Because I can't, I wouldn't even know where to begin plotting something like this. Okay. You know, when you really love something, like let's say you all of a sudden became infatuated with um, playing the guitar, you get this like intense exponential growth of like this learning curve where you just like want to learn as much as you can. You'll spend eight hours straight learning, learning, learning. You put it in your head because now you're like going through it. And in one week, you're not, you can now play the guitar like really well and people are impressed. So, you know, the same thing with when I was preparing my, uh, my track, I never actually hiked. I never camped before in my life. I've never done exploration before in my life. It was all new to me, completely new. It was uh, it was definitely kind of scary. But I've also seen a lot of different kinds of people um, hiking and, you know, doing these kind of like, you know, backpacking stuff. And I'm like, you know, I'm a big, tall, strong guy and I have a really strong head on my shoulder. I think I got this. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I had to practice. It took me about um, a few weeks to just really learn about the different um, knots to learn, you know, um, what, what, what equipment, shoes you need. And essentially, it was just all out on YouTube. Like, everything, literally everything is out on YouTube. You know, you go on, um, you know, people who are, like, talking about through heights, what shoes to wear, what's the proper, um, you know, technique, and, and how do you calibrate your, your compass and, your, you know, how do you gauge directions and things like that? How do you survive in wet conditions? compared to dry conditions, hot climates, cold climates, mountains, et cetera, et cetera. And a couple of weeks before I went to Africa, actually, I did a a walk with um, a good friend of mine who is actually an endurance walking coach. And so she decided, she said, hey, like, why don't we do this, you know, this track? Because I think she was really worried about me, (laughs) (laughs) as most people probably were. So she said, why don't we do this track? It's a 550 kilometer track from Toronto to Montreal. And it's a very popular route. And, you know, I would say that most people probably have never walked it. And, um, you know, it took me about two weeks to, to walk that 14 days. Throughout this track, she, she taught me everything I need to know for like crazy ultra long uh, walks, especially speed endurance walks. And there were times where we, we spent probably around 18 to 20 hours walking straight you start hallucinating um you start tripping out pretty bad and you know because you're also going at a really fast pace with this super heavy backpack on and um we did that because she wanted to 
overtrain me so that I can feel the brunt of what it really feels like purely on a physical level. But Africa, again, it's, it's like if I'm not physically prepared, because I have, I have so many other things to worry about, and the animals, the people, uh, you know, the heat, the climate, etc. If you can't deal with the physical part of it, then it's going to be a very difficult trip to, to finish. Mm, my God, I have so many additional questions. When you were plotting <laughs> the route, how many hours were you planning on doing a day? So originally, I wanted to do eight to 10 hours a day. And, um, and you know, it usually fluctuates. It doesn't usually go below six hours a day, but I'm definitely like keeping in between eight to 12 hours. And how about that? What did you pack? Like, how did you, obviously it was just you on your two legs. So yeah. you had to have quite a lot of equipment, tents, water, all of oh, that yeah. stuff. How did you carry all of that? How much did your pack weigh? <laughs> so it's fine. Yeah. Okay. So people ask that question and the, the funny part is it fluctuates all the time. Depends. So like when I first started, of course, my backpack was super heavy because I was completely <laughs> inexperienced and I carried this machete with me for some weird reason, uh, which I never had to use. So I'm carrying a machete for three months. And finally, I give it up and I, you know, I give it to um, a local guy in, in South Africa. And, you know, he was super kind to me. So I gave him my machete as a gift. And it was a really nice one because, you know, for him, it was brand new because I've actually never used it. So he was like, yeah, scored on that one. And then the food as well changes depending on where you are. Uh, sometimes I go for dry food if they have it available. If they don't, then, um, you know, I try to go to grocery stores and get purely dry, dry foods like, um, like uh, powdered milk, uh, powdered cream, powdered, every, everything's powdered. <laughs> Definitely in South Africa, there was a lot of biltong. So I would I would definitely consume a lot of biltong, dried fruit, dried vegetables. But what happens is once you go to start, you start going to more rural areas where there might not be a, uh, a grocery store for maybe 50 kilometers in between or 100 kilometers, sometimes two or three days. You eat what the locals eat. And, you know, I started catching prawns and tried catching fish, but... I realized that that was not necessarily the most um, conducive thing for if I wanted to complete the journey in two years, <laughs> because then I'd be definitely I would just be fishing all day. I'm a horrible <laughs> fisherman. <laughs> Were you doing spears or nets? And, uh, so I was doing nets actually. So I just uh, found onion nets. Um, basically, you can find onion bags, like proper onion bags, like the big ones, the big mesh ones. And you just put it, in the, you just put it uh, by the rock and hopefully they'll come in. So there's been a few times where I've been lucky and uh, 90% of the time where I have not been lucky. <laughs> um, so I, I, I resorted to essentially just eating, oh shoot, what do they call it again? Um, the shells on the rocks. So it sounds like there was a lot of planning involved, but it was also a huge leap of faith. I think you started your journey yeah. in Cape Town. How did you feel what was going through your mind the day that you started the journey? Yeah, it was it was definitely a lot of planning. You know, I, I spent nine months planning it. And uh, I know most people, when they do something like that, it takes them years to plan it. Um, in fact, I have people pretty much every week emailing me, um, you know, asking me for help to, to do a walk across Africa or um, along the length of Africa, which is surprising because when I when I started, nobody was uh, there was nobody around for that kind of help. 
Um, there was a guy that I spoke to who, who did it across Africa, but yeah. So nine months was like really like a lot of uh, preparation, but starting my first day was actually probably one of the most interesting days because the night before I had met these local guys, I think both of them were actually from Zimbabwe. They were having this very interesting conversation at a coffee shop. And, um, you know, I, I, I asked them, you know, like, can I join you? Your, your conversation sounds interesting. So they definitely welcomed me, you know, and they said, like, please come to sit, brother. And we sat and we, you know, we spoke. And finally, you know, one of them says, like, well, so what are you doing here? And, um, you know, so I said, I told them what I'm doing. And of course, you know, jaw drops and um, the typical reaction I, I get, um, you know, so you can imagine that I get this jaw dropping reaction every single day, two and a half <laughs> years, even today, actually. So it's it's probably the most common um, reaction. <laughs> I feel like if people don't have the jaw drop look, then it's, uh, I don't know, maybe I felt like they haven't hurt me properly. <laughs> But um, yeah, so so these guys were really interested. And there was this young kid, uh, he was 19 years old. And um, and he he asked me, he said, you know what? If tomorrow is your first day, can I join you? And I said, you know what? Actually, that might be a super idea. Why not have a person from the soil of Africa come and join me? And so we did. The next day, you know, we started early 4 a.m. And we took the train all the way down to Cape Point the most southern tip, southwestern tip of Africa. Um, as you know, there's another point that's actually the most southern tip, which I went there as well. But And we walked and it was so much fun. And we, we, we started from the beginning and we went all the way to, um, I think it was Musenberg in um, South Africa, Cape Town. And we walked and it was so incredible because he had this energy about him and he made it fun. And, you know, in my head, I was always thinking like, oh, I got to be so serious. And, but no, he was like super fun about it, you know, wearing loose clothes. And I'm just like, man, I, I, maybe I've been doing this wrong. But it really, this young kid really inspired me to see this expedition in a, in a different way, to enjoy it more, to just, um, you know, meet people and um, and yeah, like just, you know, sit down, take a, you know, take a breath and, and move and, and then move forward again. So that first day was, was incredible. It was a really beautiful experience. Couldn't have been any better. Mm, that's a nice way to enter into it. And I know with a trip like this, it's really difficult to pull out a load of different highlights when someone's like, what's the best experience you had? But I'm going to try and like draw some stuff out of you now. So if you had to name the most adventurous thing you did on this very adventurous trip, what do you think it would be? <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, okay. I mean, I guess for strategic purposes and the place where, you know, I, okay, I would rank it based on how many times a particular activity I could have died in. <laughs> oh, God. So, yeah. So I'll rank it, I'll, I'll, I'll rank it like that. And um, I would say that was definitely crossing rivers in um, South Africa. There are so many rivers along the Trans Sky, which is like the wild coast in, 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 uh, in South Africa. And I spent probably about two months trying to traverse <laughs> this particular land. And it was just like constant river crossings. And these are like mass, like some of them are massive rivers that are coming from in and then just like coming out into the sea. And, you know, as you know, there's a lot of crocodiles in South Africa and all over Africa, coastal Africa. 
And then there's like sharks doing figure eights with, you know, um, sort of clearing out the fish that are coming out. And then you have sharp rocks that kind of split the river out in half. So you have like one going out that way. And it's, and then you have to know which way the tide's going. Is the water coming in or is the water, um, uh, you know, exiting? And so these are like constant calculations. If you make one tiny mistake, then that you're done. There were moments where I actually had made mistakes where, you know, I had gone too far. There was a time where I walked 14 hours straight. And um, I remember hallucinating a little bit because I'm dehydrated. Now I'm getting cold. It's raining. It was like a weird experience. Nighttime's coming. And I decided to cross this particular river, which is actually one of the most dangerous rivers I learned later, where people actually die every year. There's, you know, people die in this river, um, this particular river every year. And usually what I do is I tie a rope around my waist and to the inflatable boat, which my backpack is on top of. So it's kind of like behind me. I jump into the water, I swim across, and, you know, I hope I make it. So, um, no, I'm just kidding. I, 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 I'll, 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 I'll calculate I'll calculate to make sure that I make it. I would never just jump in the water and be like, you know what? I don't know. If this doesn't go well, then no. I, you know... And just, well, just before I go on too, so you understand my mentality, it was actually, it's actually more embarrassing for me to not make it across Africa than it is to die. Or the, the fear of not making it is actually greater than the fear of death. But in order for me to, to, to make it to Africa, I have to make everything right. And so crossing rivers was one of, was, was, was one of them. And in this particular instance, I had this backpack over my head, I'm crossing the river, and I stepped into this like black water, which for some weird reason I thought it was shallow. And I didn't know it was moving that fast, but it was like literally rapid water. It was rapid black water. And I stepped into it and it just literally sucked me underground. Like it just sucked me down. Like I've never felt a, such a violent jolt in my life where water not just pushes you away but also sucks you under and um you know of course there were like rocks and everything like literally all first chased in there um and i knew that there were crocodiles upstream um and i was like one of the sharks are going to be waiting for me because i am probably bleeding right now and they probably would want to take a chunk just to see what's up and so you know I, i'm just out here like now i'm like okay i'm dying this is like a proper situation right now where I need to do something. So I remember, you know, one of the guys telling me, you know, because I always, I'm always learning from the local people. I'm always learning from, um, from experts and uh, the locals who live in the areas, you know, that with a riptide or whatnot, you, you know, you just kind of wait for the, for your body to float up. And, um, you know, so don't struggle too much allow the current to take you back to wherever it is that it needs to go it might even take you a while um if the shark doesn't get you oh my <laughs> but, <God. laughs> you know so but also maybe don't try to run away because then uh you look like prey so it's like this weird you got it's like this kumbaya balance <laughs> you gotta have that kumbaya balance so i made it back to shore exactly where i started 
and I had to do the whole thing over again. Oh, and, uh, that isn't the worst case scenario, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's like worst case scenario, and then like, oh, but you got to do the worst case scenario again. <laughs> and so this time I did it the proper way. I, um, I dove into the water, I, I swam across, and I made it. Um, and I remember like getting to the other side and yelling really loud, going like, yeah like just screaming in, in in like you know champions it was it was definitely a moment that's that's intense i'm so glad you made it that must have been the biggest relief and weight off your shoulders ever when you reached the other side of the bag oh my goodness yeah yeah ruined all my camera equipment though <laughs> oh no yeah I'm, I'm, at least your stuff didn't get completely swept away i guess that's one good thing fair enough <laughs> There's a feeling you get when you arrive on America's favorite island, Hilton Head Island. It's a feeling inspired by wide open beaches and strolls under oak trees draped with Spanish moss, by low country sunrises you never tire of, and sunsets spent together. This dreamy place is created by nature and designed by the tides, the salt air, and the soft evening breezes. This feeling is one you'll keep chasing and only find here on Hilton Head Island. On a trip like this, I imagine the kindness of strangers is just so essential and so meaningful. Are there any examples that you can give when local people kind of took you under their wing and and really looked after you? So many examples, you know, where do I start? And every country, I think, or maybe not even just country, but um, because the country is definitely very throughout the journey. I mean, as you know, um, you know, Africa is a, is a colonial continent. It's been split up by Europeans into 54 pieces. But the way Africans see it, um, it's not 54 pieces. It's, uh, it's kind of fluid. And, you know, a lot of the tribes, they move this way. And yet we still, you know, we still don't understand that and we still don't respect that. But, um, a lot of them flow and move this way. And so when they see me doing this, they actually respect that. They really, they commend it. They say like, this is a wonderful thing. And it inspires them to pick up and be proud of their, of their tribe. And so being invited into their homes is, is one of those things where they feel proud to show you their homes. And I'm just so honored. And I'm always honored. And one of the ways that you present yourself to the homes is you just kind of you kind of wait, you know, you just literally do a waiting game where you stand there um, and you try to speak a little bit of their language. It could be anywhere from 10 seconds to 10 hours where you're waiting for someone to let you in. Um, Or, yeah, yeah. Or, um, and I've only had to wait 10 hours once, but if you're waiting for too long, then I would just, you know, you go on to the next place. But most of the time, I'd say 85% of the time, which is huge. Like, I mean, try asking anyone in, in the Western world, like, hey, can I can I crash at your place? I'm a complete stranger. That goes from 85% to like probably 0.5%. And so, you know, these these people, they're they're just so incredibly hospitable. They they look you up in the eye and you know with pure authentic um, uh, intentions. And you can tell. And I think the, the the more you do this kind of stuff, the, the quicker you can meet people, the quicker you can understand where they're coming from, where they where they're trying to go. 
you know, you pick up patterns and you see what bad people do and you see what good people do. That means I've also had some bad experiences. I had to learn very quickly. But those lessons you usually learn once. So there was this one time in Mozambique, actually, where I was on television. They put me on the news and it was pretty epic, actually. It was the, I think, the fifth time that I was on the news in Africa at this point. That's cool. So, yeah, yeah, they put me everywhere. It's crazy. So everywhere I, I, I went to, every major city, they would do a story about me, whether it's a newspaper, magazine, or even a live event. Actually, it's, it's really insane. Um, in Sudan, they like they went crazy with me. Like they put me in TEDx talks. They put, like two TEDx talks. They put me in like I was speaking at universities uh, with for doctors, you know, um, because the, the recurring theme was always, um, you know, overcoming fear and being a global leader. And I think this is the direction of where Africa is, is going. This is the beginnings. And so I feel that energy from them. So I was all over the news. And um, I remember in Mozambique, in this completely remote place, this guy had recognized me. I was just uh, at this convenience store. Um, and this guy recognized me. And he was just like, literally like, just big time, like fanning me. Like, it was just like, oh my God, I can't believe this is, this is the Mario. This is the Mario guy. <laughs> You know, and I was like, oh, man, this is actually pretty wild. This is crazy. I can't believe this is actually happening. It's like, like you can't even make this shit up in the movies. It's insane. So this guy is just literally like, you know, I was like, oh, man, like, uh, do you have a place to stay? Like, you have to come stay with me and my family, my my wife, my two children. You know, they would be like, so I would be so honored if you could sleep there. And, you know, I, you know, the guy seemed pretty chill. And I was like, I mean, well, he wasn't chill. He was very hyper. But he was like. <laughs> You know, but he was very like, yeah, he had a chill vibe about him. So I said, yeah. So I, I joined him and um, uh, walked to his home. And it was such a beautiful experience. You know, like the whole family, they, they took me in, they embraced me. They gave me like my own sleeping quarters. And um, I remember they tried to make a meal for me, which was uh, an experience in itself because it was like traditionally the way they make it. But their stove was broken. So we ended up going to... Um, a store to pick up a new stove and you know they never asked me for anything so i said you know what? i'm just gonna buy you a stove man like like it literally means like so little to me um in terms of uh you know just finance which means nothing to me if you have it you have it you say well so you know i got the stove for him because he was making the last bit of meat that <laughs> that they had and it became this huge event he invited his neighbors it was like it was like one of the most beautiful um, experiences and i remember the next day it rained like a little bit and he was like oh you must stay because the rain is not good for you and i'm like oh dude i can get away with a little bit of rain but so i ended up staying actually for for three for three days um just because like you know they were just so cool so good and it was like a family and i felt this and this is just one of we're talking about hundreds of stories i'm just using this story as um, because it was actually the start where all of this started to happen because i left south africa which is very like euro africa so the mentality is still very western and um and then i i, I stepped into mozambique which is like very different especially if you go into the rural areas the people are thinking different you know mentality is different they haven't really picked up what western what we have been taught yeah We've been taught great things, yes, of course, but I think there's a lot that we can learn from them as well. And I think there's a lot that we we can teach them, but I think it goes back and forth. So 
the reason I stayed with them for so long was because what I was just saying, I learned so much. They taught me the story about, you know, the, the monkey and the fish. And, you know, this guy tells me, he's like, hey, um, you know, there's this monkey out playing around, living in the jungle, living the life and enjoying it. He enjoyed it so much. He would go down to the pond and play around there. And all of a sudden he saw these fish. He was like, oh my goodness, these fish are not living the life that I'm living. I, you know, I want them to be as happy as me. I want them to enjoy it. So he takes out the fish, puts it onto the ground. And he's like, all right, cool. Here's everything. The fish dies. And he keeps doing that until there's no more fish left. And essentially, with good intentions, he realizes only when it's too late that the fish has an environment that's very different to the monkeys. But the fish love this environment. They're content with this environment. Just the way that the monkey loves their environment and is content with this environment. And so I think that this is something that I learned, especially early on in Mozambique, very intelligent people, you know, who told me this stuff. And I remember this is like, we're talking conversations over uh, campfires and whatnot. They don't call it camp because camp existed way before we called it camp. <laughs> but, you know, so they, around fires, we would just look up at the Milky Way galaxy, which you can see with <laughs> complete clarity. <laughs> and then, you know, you just see like literally the Milky Way. And then, you know, we're having this fire and then the, the elders are talking and the children are calm and they're listening. And it's just such a beautiful experience. Yeah. Never felt more at home. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. What a beautiful time. I'm glad you got to spend some quality time with them because I imagine when you've got this on your mind that you need to finish in two years and you're like, okay, <laughs> I've plotted every part of the trip, but it's nice to be able to kind of go off track and off plan every now and again and spend a bit more time. Yeah. Were there any wildlife experiences that you had that really blew you away? I mean, there must have been loads, but what stands out? Um, I mean, you know, besides um, hippos and and snakes, like um, um, what was a puff adder accidentally stepping onto a puff adder that could essentially have ended your life in you know in uh, twenty hours or so, um, or uh, walk running into a um, black mamba thinking that it's basically a spare tire on the road, um, like a massive, like like a truck tire, you know, because there's a lot of uh, this debris from, from the tires. So sometimes when from a distance, because the, the sun is so hot and you see this kind of almost mirage effect, you don't know, oh, it's like it's moving, but then you're like not thinking that it's moving because you're like, oh, but it's a mirage. And then you come close, I think, oh shit, this is like a real life thing. It's like, you know, it's heading my direction. Oh, my so, God. And if you get bitten in the middle of nowhere, you've got no hope of getting an anti-venom solution yeah. from the hospital or something. Ooh. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, but but those are the most intense ones, you know, and then like my run-in with malaria from mosquitoes and whatnot, or leeches in the lake. I would say the, the, the most incredible experience, I would say, is uh, it's always like walking with wild animals. You know, uh, I think that's something that like very, very, very rare few people get to ever experience. Like, like not it's not like a day trip where you're just like kind of joining these animals. No, you're you've literally walked and these animals are either joining you or they come closer. They love to walk with like, companions. 
from a distance. Um, and as you move along, they come closer and closer. And so I found this with um, with elephants as well. There was a migration of elephants coming in from um, from northern Kenya to Tanzania. And um, we were actually crossing paths. But I remember that this one place where I pitched my tent, where I decided to, you know, call camp, is where the elephants decided to call camp. So I was just like, whoa, this is all right, cool. Like, I mean, you know, feel this, feel this. And it was like, we're talking two baby elephants. Um, and then I think there were like um, four grown elephants. And it was just like literally a family just on the highway. Like not the like human highway, but on the, on the safari highway. Oh my God, just so cool. It, it makes me think of the fact that I feel like in the West, we don't have enough opportunities to feel small. And there's something valuable about feeling insignificant and small every now and again. And it sounds like you had a lot of those opportunities from, you know, stargazing to mm. sleeping next to elephants, these kind of very humbling experiences. And it goes both ways, you know, it's, um, it's from the expansiveness of, of the universe to like what's in your heart. And I think it's like that balance of being able to, you know, go between the two um, without kind of effort is, is kind of the goal in life, really. Mm. And I know obviously you did this entire trip solo. Were there any kind of self-coaching techniques that you used to really dig deep when you were going through those moments where you just felt so tired and worn out and just kind of hopeless? There must have been those moments. I never felt hopeless um, because it's a very easy task, which is keep moving forward. (laughs) Uh, If you, okay, that that sounds a lot easier said than done, but I think it started to become a uh, a habit, a pattern, just like how when someone wakes up for a nine to five job, you know, like there's no way I could ever do that. Um, you know, I pledge, I mean, you know, I give kudos to everyone that does that kind of stuff. But like for me, it was just waking up early, um, you know, 4.30, 5 a.m. I'm, I'm ready to go. And then I'll go for as long as I can or to the nearest village or to the nearest guest house, whatever is ahead of me. So I planned it that way. Um, if there's nothing in between me, then I'll I'll camp. So what I did was I never really focused on Egypt. I never looked at, well, okay, I got to walk to Egypt. I always thought about where am I going to walk to next? What's the next um, destination I'm going to? What's happening there? So I'm always looking at like nearby events and nearby um, locations where I'm going to be at in within a week to two weeks, sometimes a month. But I'll never really look that much beyond that time. I've already planned pretty much the entire route. Like I would call it a soft plan. And so at least that gives me direction. So at least I know which direction I'm going. It's like um, like a sailor on a, on a boat. And if they're following the North Star, you know, you're, you know which direction you're going. But you don't know if the, if the waves are going to swell up or not. You don't know if. It's going to be a storm or a hurricane in between, but you know that you got to go there and you're prepared for the storm or the hurricane. And so I felt it was exactly the same thing for me. The details are when you get closer and closer to the places. But what about, you know, you're alone with your own thoughts for a lot of the time. (laughs) And like, you know, there have been experiments done where they've put someone in a room with their own thoughts and they've given them either the option of doing nothing or 
giving themselves mild electric shocks and people will opt for mild electric shocks over just sitting with their thoughts. So how did you get into that kind of meditative mindset and like close down any ruminating or, you know, future projections and just kind of stay present? Okay. So the meditation um, process works only for a little bit. Eventually it becomes bullshit (laughs) (laughs) because, you know, you, you can't fake reality. And the reality is that you're in a lot of pain for a very long time. And, um, you know, you're my, you, you won't get out of the situation anytime soon. And this is all on you, <laughs> you know. So my meditation really started to transform um, because I think meditation can be any kind of form that you want that so long as the, the, the process of the mind flowing through you um, is possible. And so for me, that's walking and um, and just looking out at things. And, you know, at one point you look at a mountain and you, you describe the mountain in your head because, you know, we were taught to think this way. So we look at the mountain and we see a mountain and we describe the mountain as something that's like, you know, very tall and, and so on and so on with rocks. But eventually what happens is you start to see the mountain, but not as what you've described it as what you've been taught it it is when you start to see the mountain for it's just this object in front of you it's hard to explain you can only really get that when you have had way too much time on your hand (laughs) over analyzing every meticulous detail of your past present and future um your psyche you've gone through you know you know what are the realities of the universe etc etc it really gets wild I listen to a lot of Alan Watts, actually. That gets trippy, too. So Alan Watts is trippy enough where I'm just like, you know what? This will hold me for <laughs> for a little bit. But then I got to the point where I'm like listening to the recordings. I've probably listened to a lot of his recordings at least 10 times. So I listen to a lot of um, uh, people who who really push the boundaries of how you can think differently under the context of reality. Not like think differently, like, oh, like the earth might be flat. <laughs> not <laughs> like this, but I mean, which I very much know is not. Uh, <laughs> just to clarify. <laughs> uh, just to clarify, yeah. It's, um, you know, um, but it's, it's more about like, you know, questioning, you know, how and why society is the way that it is. You know, is it the most ideal uh, system? What can we learn from past experiences? how our present experiences and how will they affect future experiences here on earth? Um, is it important for me to push the boundaries or do I lay back? You know, so you constantly keep asking these philosophical questions. And for me, my walk across Africa was a lot about kind of going on that journey in my mind. Mm, sounds like a real walkabout. <laughs> it was yeah <laughs> I have so much admiration for people who achieve a physical feat like the one you achieved and I've always wondered whether it feels as good as it should when you reach the end point you know like for someone who's climbing Everest when they get to the summit is it this euphoric moment or is it like oh I guess I I did it like where does the real sense of meaning and achievement come from how did you feel when you reached Cairo and made it to the end of your trip when I reached Cairo, I felt um, I felt lost and a bit empty. 
you know that feeling when you do an ultra marathon and you actually I, I don't know that feeling <laughs> oh, <laughs> or, or a marathon or any or any marathon maybe even an exam you've been studying for this crazy ridiculous exam or um, a thesis right let's say you're writing a thesis and you know you've been going at it for like a whole year a couple of years sometimes and all of a sudden it's done but you don't really necessarily feel done because the monotony of doing it over and over and over and over in your head and physically is still there. Same thing when you're running ultra marathon or marathon, your body is just like, it's repetition. It's almost like you feel this, this ghost feeling. And for me, this ghost feeling was not just the walking part, but it was just the waking up and being uncertain what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen the next day. But waking up and being like, oh, I might not get shot today, <laughs> you know, um, unless they go into the wrong neighborhood, which I might probably do just, just to like, you know, to appease my, my inner um, adventure. Because, you know, at one point you get, you get to a point where, you know, the most adventurous thing you, I did was like book a ticket, fly to Cape Town, I had an anxiety for like a month just booking that ticket. You know, after two years, you know, you start to have a bigger appetite for adventure. <laughs> You're like, oh, but like, am I sleeping next to crocodiles and hippos though? Um, <laughs> is it, am I dying from cerebral malaria? I don't know. Am I hanging out with the former president who, uh, you know, murdered tens of thousands of people? You know, so it's just like, or am I being shot at by rebels? Um, you know, which happened in Mozambique. It was kind of a crazy experience there. So, yeah, so it's just like you get to a point where, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie um, War of Lords or Lord of Wars with um, Nicolas Cage. And, you know, it was a beautiful movie, well done. It, you know, it definitely rated R and above, but there are some very intense scenes. But there's a scene where he really gets into he's a, a weapons um, a smuggler or he sells weapons internationally and most of his business is in Africa and so he goes to Africa and he gets so lost into the craziness of everything that's going on there you know there's like you know he's doing business deals here in left right and center he's seeing people being murdered right in front of him with the guns that he's selling so he gets like gets like you know like how do you mentally so he sees so much of it that he becomes, um, you know, desensitized by these things. And I felt at one point that I also became desensitized to, um, to seeing things that otherwise would have been really like an incredible experience for me. But because I've seen already maybe not just that thing, but I've seen it in maybe, you know, countless of variations of it too. <laughs> and experience it in different ways. So for me, it was just my survival, probably one of the most challenging things that I've ever had to face was how do I manage myself? How do I not get lost? Because you can easily get lost. And I've known other um, walkers. I've known other um, people who were tracking Africa at the time, didn't succeed it, um, except one guy, I think he did it from South Africa to Tanzania. But that was his goal, I think. I mean, I don't know if he wanted to go further than that. But literally every single one of them that I know has not completed it. It is a very tough thing to do. The ones who, who I heard didn't complete it, 
are the lucky ones. And the ones who I haven't heard are the unlucky ones, ones who don't make it. Because they're literally, there are so many ways that you could get in trouble. And it could happen just like that within a, a you know, fl- a flick of a finger. And, um, and uh, those are realities. And I'm extremely lucky to have survived those things. And because I kept pushing my luck and kept surviving, you start to feel invincible and that's a very toxic feeling um, because it becomes unhealthy because you put yourself in more danger. You might put your friends in danger who are with you or you might be the people in danger that you're visiting. Um, and so because, you know, you're taking them to what they're, what they're not um, prepared for, you know, but I'm already at this point where I'm just like, you know what? Yeah, I, I'll climb this mountain. <laughs> with like zero preparation. I'll do it the same day. Like I did that. I did that in, in Mount Kenya. You know, I literally, I just, I have, I was like, I have everything in my backpack that I already need to climb a mountain. Let's just do it. Today. I just arrived in Kenya. I'm like, well, let's climb the mountain today. And I did that. <laughs> I mean, your appetite for adventure must have been so through the roof when you finished that how did you readjust to life back home? Very difficult. Um, I would say deeply depressed for about a year because well it's reverse culture shock right you're going back to your culture that you were raised in um and i ended up living in england london new york brooklyn and toronto and so i have friends and family in those places and i didn't have a home so <laughs> you know clearly so i was just like kind of like couch surfing and and and, and staying at my friends places so you become, you have this reverse culture shock where you, you're looking back at, at people and going like, holy shit, man, this is boring as hell. <laughs> this is so boring. Why is nobody doing anything? Like, what do you mean? Like, you know, like, why are you being so nice? Like, what is this? Like, just, you know, say what's on your mind and, um, and everyone's good. But, and so I had to relearn how to like not be as raw as I was. And, um, and yeah, it was a very, it was tough. It was very tough. And again, I'm, I'm just super lucky, super blessed that I got out of that and um, managed to 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 manage myself, managed to to take that and make a living out of it at the same time. So that's like, you know, that's like, a, like the anomaly is is so incredible that a first of all that you someone would make a decision to 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 do that, um, and then b to do it. <laughs> to start it and then see to actually survive it and then be able to tell about it and make money from telling about it. Now that you've had time to really absorb all your experiences, what do you think were your biggest takeaways or lessons from the trip? Biggest takeaways and lessons are definitely, again, as I mentioned before, it's, um, it's learning a new way to, to, to form a culture, a global culture. I think uh, the world is coming together. Africa is the last continent to to reach a first first world um, status. It's going to take some time, but like every continent, every country, England has been there. You know, the Western world has been there. In fact, the Ottoman Empire has been around longer than the Western world has been the Western world. And if you look at the Ottoman Empire, they thrived off of sharing and having this open communication channel between you know China, India, uh, Europe, Africa, the Middle East. Such a beautiful thing. And that's why there was an explosion 
of mathematics, English, writing, because people share and people were open. And for some reason, all of a sudden, we decided that, nope, <laughs> we won't share anymore. We're going to keep things private. And if you want the best education, then you got to really pay for it. But I think the future is, is looking very bright. And, and I think that Africa actually as a continent has, a, has, a, has such an advantage because, you know, they can start from a clean slate and they can skip the first and second industrial revolution, go straight into the third industrial revolution, where they are connected and interconnected with everyone via internet. And, you know, to us, it's kind of scary, but um, go to China, it's not scary at all. <laughs> it's all about how we market it, <laughs> really. But in Africa, and particularly in Eastern Africa, they believe in uh, Ubuntu, which is a type of philosophy they believe in, where it's all for one and one for all, where they you know, share each other's ideas and they share, they help each other. No one is, uh, everyone is um, interdependent of each other in a sense. And so this is actually the progression of where the world is going. Whether you like it or not, doesn't matter what belief you have what religion or political views, what country, language you speak, doesn't matter. We're all becoming a global community that has a responsibility because our impact in the world is so large. And I've seen that firsthand when I was in Africa, particularly in um, Malawi, where there are massive, massive droughts and fires because of our contribution to CO2 emissions in the world. These people had no, had no part in this. And they are considered the poorest country in, um, in the world, according to the United Nations at the time. And so, you know, I, I did these talks in Uganda and in places like that with, with former child soldiers who should have been killing each other. But for some reason, they got saved. And they would ask me always the same question. They would say, Brother Mario, how is we as a people can overcome the fear and become courageous like you? and make the right decisions. And for me, I feel like no matter what I do, I thrive to try and answer that question as best as possible. And for me, that's through storytelling. Yeah, I mean, that kind of relates to my last question, which is, you know, when you set out to do something this huge, I don't think it's ever just for you, you know, for your benefit and your experience. Did you have any idea of how you would end up inspiring all of these other people around the world? How do you feel about being a role model? Yeah. Um, so with a, as a role model, you know, I've been a role model for track and field and I've always felt like it's a responsibility that, you know, to influence and, and to encourage young kids to, to push above and beyond what they think is possible especially in areas and places where people don't have those opportunities. To me, I I look at those people and I think that, you know, they're kind of, they're like my heroes, Um, especially the ones who overcome obstacles and challenges and thrive. Because I think that in order to, to make some real changes, I think you have to understand both sides. You have to understand the people who are struggling, but you also have to understand how not to struggle. (laughs) Uh, or how the people who aren't struggling, how they do that. But during my expedition, you know, what kept me alive and what kept me going was thinking that there's something that's greater than, than me doing this expedition. I felt like, let's say if I died, then, you know, as a, as a person of color, as a Black person, it would be, in my head at least, quite embarrassing. And people would say, well, see, there you go. That's why Black people don't explore. 
or that's why black people don't do adventures. And so I had to, I literally had to live because who knows, maybe that wouldn't have happened for another century or someone may have just taken the baton and, and, and taken it forward right after me who felt encouraged. But, you know, I don't know that. All I can do is, is do what I know now. And um, that's what kept me going, really. That was the ultimate uh, push. And um, for me, I think that's where everything is falling in line with, with the message. You know, the message didn't... I never had a message really before I went to Africa. I kind of, I kept it blank because I wanted the experience of Africa to teach me what the lesson is. That's a lovely way of putting it. Um, what's next for you? What adventure is coming up? Well, I got this Louis Vuitton show. That, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised, uh, honestly. <laughs> uh, oh my goodness. I know, right? Um, I got a, an expedition coming up called the Lucayan Trail, which is um, last year I did an expedition called the Turks and Caicos Challenge, which was to traverse the entire length of the Turks and Caicos Islands, to be the first person to do that, using only human-powered energy. It was mostly kayaking. And now I want to take it even further and go from Turks and Caicos to Miami, crossing the Bahama Islands, um, using kayak and human-powered so propulsion, so riding, cycling across the islands. And, you know, the journey is to show homage, but also to highlight the indigenous people that used to live in the Caribbean islands who don't live there anymore. They don't exist. And those are the, um, the Tano and the Lucayan people. And so this expedition is really to retrace how they traverse across these islands. Um, and I'll be doing that, uh, showcasing my adventure. That sounds amazing. I mean, Mario, I could talk to you for hours and hours. You're just full of amazing anecdotes and lessons and wisdom. So I really appreciate your time. Where can people find you on the internet? So yeah, people can find me on Instagram. I'm um, I'm not as active as, as I used to be, but um, I'm pretty sure my managers are gonna change that. <laughs> so yeah, so um, but I'm but I'm mostly active on Instagram. Um, you know, I, I do get to a point where um, if I feel overwhelmed with uh, with the social media because you know it's it's a new technology and, and we were still figuring it out. Um, so it's okay to just like you know not be on it sometimes. Amen to that. We're all just, we're all figuring it out. <laughs> oh yeah. And the Instagram is at Mario Rigby. Just FYI. Got it. If you have an extra five minutes, I'd love to do a quick fire round with you. Okay. Okay. What's the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime? The edge. The edge. That's a good Their choice. edge. Yeah. How far can you go to the edge? And I think once you reach the edge, you really truly understand and know yourself. If you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? Hmm. I would teleport on Earth, right? Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, another <laughs> planet if you so choose. <laughs> um, I would probably teleport to... Dang. I would have like a teleportation device between... Toronto and Turks and Caicos, which is my home. So I'm like back and forth there, like, like it's nothing. I wouldn't teleport to places that I haven't been to, or I wouldn't teleport to places that are almost impossible to get to, because then that defeats the point of being an explorer. A good point. (laughs) 
<laughs> What's a destination that's not so popular with tourists or perhaps relatively unknown that you would recommend? I would say um, Belize is definitely one of those places. Um, I was invited to Belize by the um, Belizean government, the tourism board. And, um, you know, they, they got me out there for a couple of weeks and they jam-packed my schedule, everyday adventures and experiences. And yeah, some of them were curated and whatnot, but it's just really, you know, it's such a such an incredible place where you can see these ancient ruins, um, much like like in, in Mexico and um, Costa Rica. But it's got its own little flavor, its, its own vibe. It's very, it's much smaller, it's calm. And it, you know, as I mentioned before, with the food, it has this Afro-Caribbean um, history during the, the you know, um, during slavery, the West African slave trade, a lot of these slaves would um, escape a lot of the islands and they would go to Belize as refuge. So there's that history that I think um, I would like to, to look into a little bit more. But I think that makes up for a very, very interesting culture. I think that people should definitely check out. What's the one thing you never travel without? I mean, this is going to sound pretty ridiculous, but let's say I don't have phone reception and I'm, you know, I don't need to take photos. I would always have, but it's like a, it's like a package thing. I would have my knife, my rope and duct tape. <laughs> Spoken like a true adventurer. <laughs> um, for anybody who wants to get more into adventurous travel, what would your top tip be? Just go out and do it. Enjoy it. Don't ask for permission. Plan it. And then the most important step is to actually go out and do it. That's what I did. And that's what everyone else does who, who does these things. It can't be finessed. You just have to literally just go out and go plan your adventure right now. Like literally, if you're listening to this right now, literally get out a pen, write down what you want to do, go on the website and figure out how to do that thing. And finally, where is next on your bucket list? I definitely want to travel throughout East Asia, actually. So I did plan um, a little adventure there. I think I'm going to spend a couple of weeks just to kind of get acquainted. And then uh, once I get acquainted, I'll look for some projects or some, um, some adventures to do there. So I like to get a good feel out of a place and then I'll come back and maybe do like a, a proper expedition there. I'm looking forward to that one. I'll be following mm -hmm. along. Thank you so, so much, Mario. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.